Excellent. Well, people, I tell you, yesterday morning when Daniel spoke, we were blown away, weren't we? Oh, my word. I said to him, do, what, do we need tissues already? At that? So he said, well, it depends. So we're in for another treat. So let's give it up for Daniel. Good morning, Scotland. Oh, my gosh. And there's a sun here. I didn't know that. It's incredible. Yeah, today is summer. Enjoy it. Yes. My daughter Lillian and I walked through Glasgow yesterday and just had a blast. We'll be telling our, I'll be telling my great grandkids about this trip way down the line. So we're thrilled to be here. That band this morning, yesterday, listen, if you can't speak after that, you need to brush up your resume. Uh, I don't, do you call it a resume here? Anyway, you need to be looking for a different work. A CV. Yes. So anyway, thrilled to be here again with you this morning. Let's, uh, let's quiet our hearts and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Trespasses, okay? Forgive us our trespasses, all right? I don't know what you do here, but I'm bringing America with me. All right, so quiet our hearts. We come before you, Spirit of the living God. We invite you, you're already walking this room every row. And now we invite you to walk our hearts. Carve out of us everything that is not like you. Fill us with the purity and the vitality of your life. Everyone take a deep breath in the presence of the Lord. We pray, Lord, as we breathe in today, that you fill us afresh every weary and wounded, we pray the life of God. To every concerned and scared person, we pray the peace that passes all understanding. Guard their hearts and minds. And now we pray the words that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, You have 10,000 teachers, but you do not have many fathers. 10,000 teachers, lots of content, YouTube channels, iTunes, iTunes U, Spotify, on and on. Paul had no idea where this story was going with content. You have 10,000 teachers, but you do not have many parents. The books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel present us three distinct religious figures. Uh, we've got the prophet. The prophet speaks to the nation. The prophet has heard from God and comes down from the mountaintop and says, Thus saith the Lord, 
and the prophet goes for the jugular. Thus saith the Lord. We know about the priest. There's the prophet. There's the priest. The priest hears what the prophet has said. The priest opens Torah. The priest wrestles with God in the scriptures and says, this is what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The, the priest calls the people of God to live in accordance with God's word. The priest calls the people to worship. The priest calls the people to these regular weekly rhythms. We've got a room full of priests here calling people into a healthy way of being in God's kingdom. The prophet, the priest. But in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's a third figure that is very strange to us. We don't know much about this figure. And this figure is the sage. And the sage speaks to the person right in front of him or her. The school of Israel's sages, which the Old Testament simply refers to as Solomon, they wrote wisdom literature, We've got the Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. A handful of the Psalms are, are wisdom literature written by the sages. And these sages very often are what I'll call front porch theologians. Front porch theologians, what do you mean? Well, they, they sit on the front porch drinking their proper tea. <laughs> and, or in America, lemonade, you know. They just, they sit on the porch and they watch life. And they pay attention to how life works. And they've watched for years as this one father has walked down the street in front of their porch to the park with his three kids. And he screams at his kids. And he curses them. And he tells them they're a mess. And, and, and this front porch theologian can predict in about 10 or 15 years there's going to be great rebellion here. Because of the way this dad has lived. Year after year after year, what you sow, you will also reap. And so the front porch theologian can go, you know, I'm not totally sure all the details, but I guess if I've been watching them for five years, that in about ten years you're going to see dot, dot, dot. Front porch theologian. I have a friend, Jason, whose great-grandmother, Cora, was 107. And in his senior year of high school, I don't know what you call it, primary school, he's almost about to go into college. He was told to interview someone who was older and ask them what was the most wonderful season of your life. So he went to his grandma, great-grandma Cora, who was 107, and he thought, well, she's the oldest person I know. And he says, great-grandma, what was the greatest season of your life? And without, a, without skipping a beat, she said the Great Depression. In the United States, 10 years of Great Depression, 1929 to 1939. And he thought, this is the greatest season of your life? Tell me more about that. And she said, in the Great Depression, we actually had to live how God designed us to live. There was simplicity and community and joy. Great-grandma Cora was a front porch theologian. She'd logged miles with God. She had lived. She had understood what was going on. She paid attention to life. She was a people watcher. And she, she took good notes. Uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there were the elders at the city gates. And if you were to come into any town... You would find in the town square, the elders gathered around, come let us reason together. And if you had a dispute that needed adjudicating, if you felt someone had moved the ancient boundary stone from your property and infringed on your property to take some, up, uh, some of your property, you would all go to the elders at the city gates and you'd present your case to them and they would think it through and they would talk and they would reason and they would ask questions. And then they would come with a ruling and then you would submit to the ruling. Because these elders knew how to preserve peace in the society. And this is something that is 
deeply embedded into the human tradition, into God's world, that there are those who have gone before us who have learned how to live that we need to submit ourselves to, the sages. Today, though, we're obsessed with being young, right? Um, we want to do anything we can to be young. <laughs> Hi, isn't this beautiful? Like, no, it's not. Like, I need you to be older. I need, I, I need you to be okay with being older. Um, we're embarrassed to age, and so we figured out all kinds of different ways to cut that off at the pass. We're uncomfortable, so we hide our elders away to go die in private. Like, okay, go ahead. Your time's up. We kind of chuckle because it's uncomfortable. Uh, in, in every society, you, in, in the ancient world, you would honor and revere and, and pay homage to the elders. You would, you would submit yourself to the elders. But we live in a society today that thinks Justin Bieber is the coolest. And uh, I say that to our shame. It's actually one of the things I love about the monarchy. Um, say what you want, but like, there's some honor there. There's some, whoa. Bless her, Lord. Bless him, Lord. God save her. The thesis that I'm working with today is we need a fresh injection of the gift of wisdom in this age of prolonged adolescence. A fresh injection of the gift of wisdom in an age of prolonged adolescence. Examples of sages in the Bible, you've got Jacob on his deathbed, vision so refined to speak not just to his children's future, Jacob's 12 sons, but to speak about his son's future. You read the story in later Genesis, and he, before he dies, he talks about his 12 sons, and he really hits the nail on the head about what their future and what their clan will look like. Jethro visiting Moses, we heard it yesterday from Pastor John in Exodus 18, and Jethro's watching his son-in-law Moses lead this newly constituted people into freedom, and he just goes, that's not going to work. What if you tried this? What if you paid attention to how you, okay, structure it this way. And, and you look and you see Moses who is about to crumble underneath the weight of God's people. And because of his sage father-in-law Jethro stepping in at the right time and because Moses submitted to Jethro and actually took his advice, Moses lives, the people thrive, God's story continues on. There's a sage. Simeon and Anna in the temple encounters with Jesus. I love the story in Luke 2. Mary and Joseph bringing the boy on the eighth day to be circumcised in the temple. And Simeon, led by the Spirit of the Lord, sweeps the child up and says, Mine eyes have seen salvation, glory for God's people, Israel. Now you can dismiss your servant in peace. Anna, worshiping day and night in the temple, 84 years old, fasting and praying, and she sees something. She's got this eyesight by the Spirit to, to see what God is doing through this child, Jesus. One of my favorite stories is Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. And Paul is, uh, you know, a converted barroom brawler. You know, he used to be Saul, and in the name of God, he was going around with papers from the chief priest. He was killing Christians, thought he was doing God a favor by striking down this Jesus movement. Until Jesus strikes him down off of his horse in Acts chapter 9. 
brings him brings him to. And Paul, it says in uh, Acts 18, each Sabbath, Paul was found at the synagogue and he was trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul spent all his preaching, time preaching the word and he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. And you can see Paul, his blood starts racing here. Like, what's he going to do? Paul used to kind of have this rough past. Paul, is this the moment where he snaps, where he goes off, his blood starts racing? Your blood be on your own head. It says, then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. Interesting to me here that Paul understands that he needs Priscilla and Aquila. He needs these sages. He needs these people who can show him the way. He needs counsel. He doesn't go to Syria by himself. He goes taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. And here's the interesting thing about the day we live in, as opposed to ancient times where the sages were woven into the fabric of a community, a sage today must be purposely discovered and thoughtfully pursued. A wise person, a sage, needs, needs to be purposefully discovered and thoughtfully pursued. So today, before we race too far into it, I'm going to put, uh, put in front of you a few common threads that can be found in a sage, in a father, in a mother, in someone who's lived well, in someone who's logged miles with God. Here's a few things that I'll put in front of you, and then we'll tease this out. First, a sage studies the way the world works. It's a front porch theologian. They've practiced the spiritual discipline of trial and error. <laughs> Some of you didn't know that was a spiritual discipline. Trial and error. Decades of experience. You'll find sages in the most unlikely places very often. They can be mechanics. They can be school teachers. They don't have to have a master's degree in theology. They just have to have submitted themselves to the spirit of the Lord for the long haul. A sage studies the way the world works. The second thing about a sage is a sage can only be a sage because she or he doesn't want to be known as a sage. I always grew up in this house where my dad was quoting Proverbs to me and he would say, Son, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. I'm trying to pay you a compliment, but you keep beating me to the punch. A sage can only be a sage because he or she does not want to be a sage. There's a humility. There's a willingness to be tucked away in invisibility. There's a, there's a submission to living in the fields of obscurity and just trusting the Lord for the future. A sage is willing to hide away. St. Thomas Akempis wrote this beautiful little phrase, and I can't shake it, love to be unknown. Love to be unknown. Go away. Hide yourself under the shadow of the Almighty. Tuck yourself away in His presence. Don't care what the world thinks. Don't, don't work the plan to make yourself famous. Don't just love to be unknown. And sages just instinctually know that you can trust God with the future. You don't have to tell your story to the world. Let God tell your story. Sages, um, they're okay with the obscurity. And I, I've used this example before. Chuck and Taryn were there 18 months ago when I just told this example. But you know, 
we bought a house several years ago that was older, and some of you are like, oh, older, like 40, 50 years old, right. And you're like, my house is older than your nation. Okay, <laughs> thanks for nothing. <laughs> All right. So anyway, it needed some work, this house we bought, 50 years old. And good is good bones, you know, real good structure, but it was dated. And so we went in and we started tidying things up and, you know, re- fixing up the kitchen and replacing the fireplace hearth and painting and, and ripping out old shag carpet and putting in the wood floor. And our friends would come over and they would notice the work that we had done and they'd say, oh, that's so nice. We love, we lo- oh, beautiful here. And one of the things that I realized that they would always comment on was cosmetic stuff. Oh, the paint is really nice, or I like where you, what you do. But nothing was structural that we did. Nobody comes into a house and says, oh, I just love those load-bearing walls. <laughs> wow. It's just not sexy, you know, load-bearing walls. It's just, it doesn't. They say, I love the fireplace. I love the kitchen. I love the new floors. It's the cosmetic stuff that gets all the attention but it's the infrastructural stuff that makes a home possible. And I want to say that sages are the load-bearing walls in our lives. They're the people that keep us together. They're the people that keep us solid. They're the people that keep us from collapsing. Sages are the invisible infrastructure that helps keep our lives sturdy. The mothers and fathers. You have 10,000 teachers, but you don't have many And understand how important that is, sage folks. Third thing about sages, a sage refuses to give oversimplified one-word answers to complex issues. Have you ever been with someone and you're in this like long protracted season of difficulty and pain and trying to discern the voice of God and and you're you're living in prayer and you're fasting and you're, oh God, just speak. Oh, Spirit of the Lord, I'll wait on you. I won't go until, if you don't go with me, I'm not going up. And you're just, and, and you come and you take the chance and you risk yourself and you put yourself out in front of someone asking for the, their advice. And they go, oh, that's simple. Well, do this. And you, you're like, I've been praying about this for nine months. And you make me feel like a fool when you treat me like that. It's not that simple. A sage refuses to just chop people up and spit people out and move on to the next. A sage will ask a good question. A sage will pray with you. A sage will enter into the process of discernment. A sage will ask really good questions and draw out of you what's deeply embedded in your heart. They listen patiently. They respect the mystery of and therefore work to nuance the life in front of them. I realize the irony of a 35, 36-year-old talking about sages, but if there's one thing I've been blessed with in my life, it's many mothers and fathers in faith. This is a life message for me. This is something that I have been blessed with. I was raised as a pastor's kid and in the life of the church, and I had 25, 30 aunties and uncles who, in the faith who would kiss me on the cheek and then spank my bottom, you know? if I needed it, and they would pray over me and prophesy over me and lay hands on me and give me prophetic words that I've still got tucked away in my heart and written down in my diary and my journal, and and and, and I just grew up in the house of God where there was the safety and the security. I had load-bearing walls that kept me from collapsing. 
And I see my peers today who love to spend time with their peers. And they, they, and they, they don't love to be unknown like the saint told us. And I just think I would much rather spend my time with people who've logged miles with God way ahead of me, who can lay hands on me, who can speak life over me. And there was a, a time about 12, 13 years ago that I knew I needed a sage. There was a day I discovered that I wasn't going to be enough for myself. I, I came to New Life Church 2005, Lisa and I were young, married. We'd been married 12 days and moved from Oklahoma to Colorado Springs. And our church was on top of the world. Just ask us. Our senior pastor was the head of the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States, which was a 30 million member group. And we had offices in Washington, D.C. Our church was in Colorado. But anytime something was going on in the nation or there were questions about what does the church think about this, they would call us and we would tell them. And our church was gargantuan and our church was going and blowing. And, and uh, Mel Gibson, when he wanted to premiere The Passion of the Christ for the first time, he came to our church. We had 3,000 pastors there who've flown in from all over the world and he gets up on the stage and does a Q&A with us and then shows the movie and we're all taking pictures with him and we think it's so cool. President George W. Bush, he Skyped in for our pastor's conference and was laughing with our pastor. We were just on top of the world until we weren't. One day, November 1st, 2006, our senior pastor was found out to be in an inappropriate relationship and it was a sex and drug scandal that went on the front page of every newspaper, not in America, but in the world. It was scandalous, and it was, it was just really easy pickings to make for a, a filthy story. And our church, in one day, lost our senior pastor. We discovered we were $26.5 million in debt. We didn't know that. So we lose our senior pastor. We're $26.5 million in debt. The Lord returns us to innocence and purity, and we're actually praying again and fasting again and getting back to the people that made us the church that we were. We got a new senior pastor 10 months later, and uh, we were starting to just trust again and restore, and, and okay, God's with us, and we're, we're praying it out and crying it out, and God's doing a deep work of purification in our church, and we're loving the church we're becoming again. On the 100th day of our senior pastor's uh, time with us, it was a normal Sunday morning, uh, a, a legend, Dr. Jack Hayford, was at our church speaking. He's 86 now, and so this was, he was 75 then, and it was a snowy Sunday morning, and I picked him up. Lillian was, I don't know, six months old at the time, and we only had one car that could drive in the snow, so I left my wife Lisa and Lillian at home, and I went and got the man of God, and I drove him to church, and I was just thinking, don't kill him. You know, don't crash in the snow. You have one job. Get him to church. So I got him to church, and I was relieved, and I would called my wife, and I said, I'll come after the first service and get you and bring you home because of the car. And church got busy. A church gets busy. And so I ended up calling my wife and saying, I'm so sorry. I can't come get you too. Um, I, I feel terrible. I, I not able to get my wife and daughter to church. And one o'clock, we'd finished the second service. And I'm standing down at the end of our children's hallway. And uh, our pastor and Dr. Jack Hafer were having lunch. And I was getting ready to go up to their office, and I was standing at the end of our children's hallway, ten or 100 days into our senior pastor's job at this troubled church, 
And at the end of the children's hallway, I, I hear, a gunman came on our campus with an assault rifle and a thousand rounds of ammunition and killed two girls, teenage girls in our parking lot and ran into our building and spraying bullets everywhere. He gets into our children's hallway just minutes before there are hundreds of parents and their children checking out of church. And uh, a security guard runs down to meet him and hides in the door, a cavity of the door and has a little handgun and jumps out and shoots and hits him in the leg and he falls down and he takes his own life in our children's hallway. We lost our senior pastor 13 months before, $26.5 million in debt. Get a new senior pastor 100 days in, double murder, suicide in our campus. And here we are. serious we made it through one scandal and this is how we're going to go out now and we were heartbroken and it was a monday morning i go to a second hand bookshop and lillian was just a little pumpkin and she would sleep all day at this time so i bought this book for 99 cents saw it on the shelf the contemplative pastor eugene peterson i i think that's the guy who translated the message bible so I buy it, 99 cents, take it home that day. Lillian's napping all day. And I read 172 pages, all of it in a day. And I just was spellbound. This is what it means to be a pastor. So I write this guy a letter, Eugene Peterson. I don't know who he is or where he lives or how old he is. I don't know anything except his book just touched my heart. And I grew up in a pastor's home and watched my parents live it. And this is the first time I had read the, the past life of the pastor so beautifully articulated. So I write him a letter, Eugene, uh, here's who I am, I'm 24, here's the church that I've been at, here's what's happened. Could I come spend a day with you uh, wherever you are and just ask you questions and pray? And I send it to his publisher saying, if you could get this to Mr. Peterson, I'd really appreciate it. If you can't, I understand. So two weeks later, I come home from work and I go to the mailbox and there's a letter and in the top left corner, it's scratched out, E. Peterson, Lakeside, Montana, 59923. What? I open it up, and it's a letter from Eugene. He says, Dear Daniel, yes, I'd be willing to spend a day with you here in Montana, period. But not so fast, period. He said, I want you to write a three-page paper on what is pastor and a three-page paper on what is church to see if we even have enough common ground to begin a conversation. I don't want to waste your time, and I don't want you to waste my time. And if you come, and, he, and then he goes on to just rip me to shreds, the church that I'm at. And then at the end, he says, and if you come, I don't want it to be a touristy visit. The peace of our Lord, Eugene. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so encouraging. I didn't know at this time he was 76. And he'd done his work. And he was at this moment in his life where he was coming into this new moment of sageliness. And he said, but not so fast. And I told him at the end of his life, I just went to his funeral in November. He was 86. And I spent a decade of being his friend. I took nine trips out to see him. We'd call each other and write letters. And he became a dear friend. And 
He, I told him at the end of his life, I said, Eugene, the best four words you could have ever used with me were, but not so fast. Which means the fourth thing a, a sage uh, knows to do is a sage is not afraid to make you work for it. Sage is not afraid to make you work for it. It took Eugene Peterson 65 years to become an overnight success. That's what I always say. Nobody knew about him until he translated the message. Before that, he'd spent 30 years pastoring the same small congregation in the same small town in Maryland. He wrote a long obedience in the same direction, which is, to me, the beautiful definition of discipleship. A long obedience in the same direction. A sage is not afraid to make you work for it. And so here, here's the, a little thought, I want, a thought experiment I want to do with you. I want to ask you this question. Tell me how many 80-year-olds you see that are vibrantly in love with the Lord. Remember yesterday we talked about start with the end in mind. Getting to the end and being able to say, I've fought the good fight, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. How many 85-year-olds can you think of right now who after following Jesus all of their lives are vibrantly in love with him, have a simplicity of spirit, have joy, have relationships that are intact. How many people? That's a very short list of people. Which means the enemy is out stealing and killing and destroying and trying to cut us off from getting to that moment. We pastors have a very distinct occupational hazard to be aware of. We'll work on fixing everybody but ourselves. We're helpers. We're people in crisis. We know how to step into the moment. We do weddings. We do funerals. We, we, we help. We counsel. We, we talk people off the ledge. We, we encourage and we, we strengthen. We show up in hospitals. And it's very easy to spend all of our time fixing everybody else and neglecting our own souls. What does it profit a pastor to serve the church and lose his or her own soul? We'll become excellent custodians of all the religious machinery and we'll become emaciated human beings. So how do you make sure this isn't going to happen? I think we need to find some mothers and fathers. You have many teachers. You have many people who can give you good content. You have many people who've written great books. You have many, you've got all kinds of noise out there, but you don't have many fathers and mothers, says Paul. And so I think it's Im Im important for us to find people who have logged miles with God, who love to be unknown, who've lived in simplicity and joy and purity of spirit, who fought the good fight, who've run the race, who've kept the faith, who've, who've gone before us, and we go and we submit ourselves to them, and we say, would you show me, please, how to live? I think that is something we really need to do as a church, as brothers and sisters serving God's church. Some of you asked the question, uh, what does this look like for us to model this in our churches? I think that's a brilliant question. And I think we ought to be the, the people of God who model it. So I'll put a simple model for finding a sage or a mentor in front of you. First, find someone worth being like. It's really easy to find the people you don't want to be like. You just, oh yeah, no thanks. But find someone worth someone worth being like, then pursue them. Ask them for lunch. Can I take you to tea? Can I buy you coffee? Can I come over? The, the third thing is ask really good questions. 
I'm a legal pad guy. I write everything down. And when I, when I meet with someone who is wise, who's, who's logged miles with God, when I bump into a sage, I, I come with four or five really good questions because there's nothing worse than wasting someone's time. It's disrespectful to come into that meeting and to make that person lead it. Have you ever been in that situation that someone asks you for a meeting and you come and you respond and you sit there and, and then they just stare at you? And you're like, wait, I thought you called the meeting. What do you want? So if you're going to ask a sage out, come ready with questions. Hey, I see that you've been married to your wife for 60 years. Tell me how you stayed married for 60 years. What are the keys? What have you learned about raising children? What have you learned about managing your finances? What have you learned about being a pastor in God's church and making it through with, with wholeness and sanity? Ask really good questions and take good notes. I have a friend who says, write it down or write it off. There's something, even scientists have tracked the brain activity when you're writing things down, and they say that you remember it much more when, even if you just jot it down on a piece of scratch paper. Take copious notes. Question comes, how do we develop churches that make space for the wisdom of the wise? How do we develop churches that make space for? If it's true that we live in an age that honors and, and uh, venerates youth and beauty, how do we create churches that honor wisdom and vitality? First, we've got to model good relationships. There's a man in our church. His name is Mr. Bob Staten. He's 92. And he's playing golf every week and going on walks. And he was married to his wife, Larray, for 56 years. She died 10 years ago. And Bob comes to church every Friday and every Sunday, and he's there worshiping the Lord, and he's got his, his um, um, tell me what they're called, hearing aids, forgive me for that. He's got his hearing aids in, and he comes down through the communion line every Friday like this, and puts his hands out, and then he comes over to me, and I give him a kiss on the cheek and a big hug. Every Friday, he's looking for me through the communion line. And very often at the end of the service, so you're asking the question, Hey, how do we model churches that, that honor the, the wisdom of the wise among us? So about four times a year, I'll, I'll call Bob up at the end of the service, and I'll say, Mr. Bob, come right up here. We've just heard the word of the Lord, and I want you to pray the blessing over us. And he walks up on the stage, and Father God, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. You could hear a pin drop. I hear people start breaking out in tears sobbing they don't even know why because the spirit of the lord comes when this man who's followed jesus for 92 years stands up in our midst and he prays blessing over us and if i as a pastor didn't draw it shame on me if we've got a church with 92 year old bob staten in it and nobody else knows it's my job to honor and respect and to call him to a place of authority. And as I do, and I step out of the way, and I'll get down on my knees while he's praying, and the room comes to attention in the, in the presence of the Lord. So what, it, what would it look like for you and your church to honor the wisdom of the wise among you? You can make it your own. I'll let you do it however you would like. But I think our churches will be blessed if we do it. I think our churches will be impoverished if we don't. It starts from the leadership and it moves outward. If you will honor the wisdom of the wise, if you will call attention to the sages among you, uh, your church will get it.
and the Lord will honor it. The second thing is tell good stories. I take Bob to breakfast about quarterly. So he comes up and prays on the stage quarterly, and then I take him to Cracker Barrel for breakfast, and I buy him eggs and bacon. And I say, Bob, tell me. Tell me how you did it. What do I need to know about life that I don't know about life? And you just listen. And he will talk for 90 minutes and tell stories, and I've recorded on my phone because I want to go back and listen, and he'll start weeping, just telling stories of God's faithfulness. And then I'll get up and I'll tell stories in my sermon of my breakfast with Mr. Bob this week and how Mr. Bob was challenging me and tightening me up and, and helping me live faithfully. And when, when the pastor, when the leader is standing up in front of the congregation and telling stories about what they've learned from the wisdom of the wise, the church catches it. Oh, this is something we do. This is what it means to be the people of God. Tell really good stories and it'll infect your churches. And then ask people questions. Ask your church, now, who is in your life that's teaching you? Who are the mothers and the fathers that you've submitted yourself to? Who are, who are you looking up to? Who are your heroes? Are your heroes the, the heroes that society says you ought to be like? Or are your heroes people who love to be unknown? Ask really good questions from your congregation. And if we live this way, brothers and sisters, we will look up over the course of the next three to five years and we'll start seeing in our churches that, yeah, there's a bunch of teachers, but we have many fathers and we have many mothers. And I think it's our job to, to call out the giftings of the, the people that God has placed in front of us, the wise sages, the saints who've gone before us, to honor them, to bless them. Honor your father and mother and it will go well with you and you will live a long life on the earth. Do you know that Paul says as we do this, this is the first commandment with the promise. Honor your fathers and mothers and it will go well with you and you'll live a long life on the earth. I want to encourage us. Yesterday we talked about friendship and the importance of friendship. It's necessary. It's crucial. It's also very necessary to have fathers and mothers in the faith. And there's no need for us to go this alone. And so today I want to challenge you to, to invest in those relationships, to pursue the wise ones around you, to honor the sages, to create churches that make space for mothers and fathers to flourish so that we can have the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacob all, Jacobs all worshiping together. Can you say amen? amen? Let me pray blessing over you, Father.